for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. For more, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly cash back more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you're wrong. You should always do your own homework and let us know the world. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Well, hello, Frank. Hey, fellas. Hi. <laughs> I, never... I don't like this. I don't like this. <laughs> Sorry, Paul. Because he knows what's going to I... come out. <laughs> I never say that. I was just trying to uh, alarm Paul. I think I've succeeded. <laughs> so, Paul, what do we do on this show? <laughs> Well, it's a great question. Um, this is an internal medicine podcast, and we use expert interviews to bring clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge to our audience. Yes, that is that's that's quite true. And it's late, and I think I'm delirious. So <laughs> he's he's quite no. entertaining. Yeah, I have to but try to figure out how I'm going to make training. it to work tomorrow with the Eagles parade going on. I oh. I don't know what's going to happen. Oh yes, there was that that occurred. Yeah, well. Anyway, uh, Stuart, I heard you had some listener feedback. Actually, this was not my listener feedback. They sent it to you. Right. Anyhow, this is from uh, uh, James Wirt. He's a third-year medical student at Campbell University. He wanted me to give a shout-out to the Campbell University School of Osteopathic Medicine in rural Bowie's Creek, North Carolina, <laughs> home of the Fighting Camels. Go Fighting Camels! And, uh, All right. So the reason why Stuart was willing to read that is because I, this, I wasn't going to read the rest of it. it this young gentleman, no, I want you to read it. He he's <laughs> okay. a huge right, fan fine, of Stuart fine. Brigham. I said, uh, so he says here. I just wanted to tell you guys that I love the podcast. Doctor Stuart Kent Brigham is the man, <laughs> and I love his commentary. Your podcast is the gold standard. Keep up the work. And then he asked me to give a shout out, which I did. <laughs> and and Stuart, how long have you had the sock puppet account? <laughs> <laughs> I apologize, what? <laughs> <laughs> Not important. Anyway, thanks thanks for sending me that email, Stuart. Um I couldn't I could barely tell that it was you. Anyway, yeah. well, I tried. Uh, on this episode, we're going to be talking about iron deficiency anemia and specifically how to treat it. I know we've done a previous episode on on anemia with Dr. David Steensma from uh, Harvard and Dana, the Dana Farber, but this episode is with Dr. Michael Auerbach. Dr. Auerbach, it, Dr. Michael Auerbach, MD, FACP. He is a hematologist oncologist at Auerbach Hematology and Oncology Associates Inc. in Baltimore, Maryland, and a clinical professor of medicine at Georgetown University School of Medicine in Washington, D.C. He earned his medical degree at New York Medical College and completed an internship and residency in internal medicine at the Cleveland Clinic Foundation in Ohio. Subsequently, he completed fellowship training in hematology and oncology at Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center and Harlem Hospital Center in New York, New York. He went on to do a research fellowship in thrombosis and hemostasis at Columbia. He is board certified in internal medicine and hematology and medical oncology. He has authored or co-authored over 150 journal articles, meeting abstracts, most recently focusing on intravenous iron supplementation in pregnancy and in patients with restless leg syndrome. He is a member of numerous professional organizations, a fellow of the American College of Physicians, a member of the American Society of Hematology. 
He also serves on the scientific board of the Network for Advancement of Transfusion Alternatives and advises the Society for the Advancement of Blood Management. And in 2010, with three colleagues, he participated in the first educational session ever delivered on the use of IV iron at the American Society of Hematology's annual meeting. And in 2016, presented another on complete replacement dosing in an initial brief single visit. And he's talking about IV iron there. So on this episode, I just wanted to clarify some things up front here. Um, One of them is just the basic definition of iron deficiency, which we kind of blew by thanks to uh, a well-timed question from Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. (laughs) You're welcome. Anytime. Anytime. Stuart, can you just give us the basic definition of iron deficiency and just some of the cutoffs so the audience has it? Because we kind of jumped right right into the topic. Absolutely. So iron deficiency is... Uh, so first you have to know what the normal concentration for ferritin is, and so that ranges typically from 40 to 200 nanograms per ml. A ferritin less than 15 is considered diagnostic for iron deficiency and uh, is almost invariably associated with iron deficiency with around a 52-fold um, risk for iron deficiency. You also need to look at the transferrin saturation activity. If it's less than 20%, you can be fairly certain that you have iron deficiency, but the 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 tiebreaker between that is looking at the soluble transferrin activity level. Okay. Yeah, and the soluble transferrin receptor activity, we talked about that with Dr. Steensma. That is not an acute phase reactant. So if so, even if someone has a high ferritin, you check the soluble transferrin receptor activity. Um, if that's really high, that can suggest they're actually truly iron deficient um, despite, and the, even in the face of inflammation, you would still be able to use that as a marker. Right. Unfortunately, in my institution, in my institution, it takes a couple days to come back. So you can't, it takes a while. It's not, it's not super useful when it takes, it's a send out test. No, Uh, that's true. The other thing I wanted to define for the audience is the newer terminology. So it used to be anemia of chronic disease. Then it was anemia of chronic inflammation. And apparently now it's iron restricted erythropoiesis. And that is the new, (laughs) that's the new term that you'll hear. Dr. Auerbach use, and I do get him to clarify it eventually, but he he says it a couple times, so you'll know what it is right off the bat. And basically, the way to diagnose that is um, the ferritin level is either high or normal, but the transferrin saturation is low. That suggests what we used to call anemia of chronic inflammation, but we are now, I guess, going to be calling iron-restricted erythropoiesis. And with that, Dr. Williams, I think we are ready to go to the show. That's right. Dr. Auerbach, man, he, he was so well-versed in iron treatment. I think we could just call no. him Tony Stark. Uh, <laughs> that one physically hurt me. I... <laughs> That's okay. I earn no salary for this. With us tonight is Dr. Michael Auerbach. Hi, Michael. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Pleasure. That pleasure is all ours. Stuart, we're finally letting you talk about IV iron on the can air. You, can you believe it? I'm so stoked. <laughs> I, mean, I have been dreading this for years. Yeah, I, I sat Just next two. to this guy in the teaching clinic for four years and would hear all these rants on iron. And then when we go, we would go on air and talk about iron, which we've done a couple times, he has never, never been there. here. That's right. So tonight is your night, Stuart. Well, but, it's- but yeah. But first, I'm going to ask Michael the, the standard question. Michael, if you had to describe yourself as a one-liner for the audience, what would that sound like? Private practitioner with an extensive 
clinical and research experience with intravenous iron. And what about outside of outside of hematology and medicine? Uh, what what would that one liner sound like? Classical pianist. Oh my! Oh, all right. <laughs> oh, we're friends already. <laughs> Gentlemen, would you like to ask him anything? Paul. Paul, go ahead. <laughs> all right. Um, Michael, I, it's a question I, I, I like to ask stuff that's sort of outside the scope of medicine. Um, and I always send people into a blind panic when I ask about a book every physician should read. So, but what's the last good book that you've read? Bellevue. Yes, I heard about that. I have not. It was written by um, David Oshinsky, the person who wrote the Pulitzer Prize winning book, Polio, which hmm. is also marvelous. What about that book did you like? Bellevue or Polio? Uh, Bellevue. It's it's such a roller coaster ride about the history of the most amazing hospital in the country. So it's it's fascinating. It's just fascinating the history of medicine, the ghoulishness, the amazing stuff that occurred, the right. wonderment, the change of guidelines every 3 months lately. The Nobel laureates that came out of that hospital. Right. No, it I, looks like a good read. I just pulled it up here. Yeah. Um, my question for you is a, is a little bit off the beaten path. It's not from the script here, but um, and this is this is probably a little bit of uh, you know, just trying to understand where you're coming from. But why why iron? What what interests you specifically in iron deficiency, anemia, and IV iron? Well, I was a fellow at Columbia medical school in the late 1970s and I was working in a lab but I kept my hematology clinic open and a young man with sickle cell anemia no I'm sorry sickle cell trait who was constantly urinating a fair amount of gross blood was horribly iron deficient miserable with oral iron as are the majority to whom it's given <laughs> Mm-hmm. And an Indian professor told me, because I thought it was okay to give him intramuscular iron. I, I now shudder at the thought. But this was – I was just a baby doctor back then. <laughs> wow. Yes. It's long it's, – it's 40 years ago almost. And um, he said, you know, in India, we give all of the iron intravenously – in a large single dose. And it was not approved and we needed IRB approval from Columbia. And we brought him into the hospital and we gave him a calculated dose of about two grams over 12 hours. <laughs> wow. And you you read, no, if it was Imphron, and Imphron's no longer available. It went off the market in 1991. But it was a decent iron. And um, you read about iron dextran and you think you're subjecting somebody to highly lethal therapy. <laughs> but I, I never saw such a dramatic clinical response. This guy's life was changed overnight. He was losing his teeth because he couldn't stop eating ice and he couldn't sleep oh, wow. at night. And I didn't link the two. 
we didn't know back then. Right. And so I, I, I really didn't belong in the lab. Um, and I became very interested in giving intravenous iron to people in a single dose and shortening it. And I got it shortened down to four hours in 1988. And it became a great way to replace iron. We weren't seeing any serious adverse events, but no one really cared. Um, it didn't have any pizzazz at all. I would get an occasional invitation to speak about intravenous iron and no one paid any attention. And then all of a sudden, my savior came along, recombinant erythropoietin in 1989. And who knew? I mean, think about it. If you had dialysis and in, in well, well, let's go back. If in before the Korean War, if you needed dialysis, all you could do was die. There was no other option. And then dialysis came along, and everybody thought this was going to be like Lazarus. And the average survival was two years, and the patients mm-hmm. were miserable trying to live with the dispiriting symptoms of hemoglobins in the sevens. Mm-hmm. And then Erythropoietin came along and they go, oh boy, Lazarus is making another trip. And yet four <laughs> years after EPO came out, 60% weren't being treated to target. Many weren't hmm. be treat, being treated at all. And the reason was it didn't work. We didn't know about iron-restricted erythropoiesis back mm-hmm. then. Right. Functional iron deficiency. And then Eschbach and Adamson in the University of Washington showed that when you give iron to dialysis patients who were iron replete boom starts to work this real expensive drug epo mm-hmm. all of a sudden uh now starts to work amgen was afraid it would decrease use of epo if you gave iron boy were they wrong just <laughs> the opposite occurred once iron started to be given the use of erythropoiesis stimulating agents skyrocketed so i i I started using iron in um, a variety of different um, study, um, situations, and then in in the late 1990s, we gave total dose infusions to dialysis patients and showed that you could save a half a billion dollars if you gave it all at once, and we had the main symptom we saw was this arthralgia myalgia syndrome that occurred the next day and it occurred about 15, 20% of the time. We showed you could get rid of it with steroids, but 85% of the time it doesn't happen. And a hundred percent of the time, if you give people steroids, they're wired for the rest of the day. <laughs> so we, we stopped doing that. And, and, um, then we started to do iron and chemotherapy induced anemia. And that was the, that was really the ticket to um, a wide open career. Yeah. So, so our, our audience is is pretty mixed, starting from pretty junior, um, both uh, learners. When it, uh, we've got students, medical students, nursing students, PA, nurse practitioner students. So let's. I, I the the information is it's exciting me, and I want to jump into the granular level right now. But I think it's important for us to back up just a moment. And in your own words, could you give us some idea of what exactly is iron deficiency anemia, 
and how how is it diagnosed? Now, we can look at this in the context of a clinical case. I think most clinical cases would be very similar. You might have a young patient coming in with symptomatic anemia, low hemoglobin. So let's just back up and, say, and, and look at iron deficiency anemia at the fundamentals. You want the most common or a... Or, or one that's always iron deficient. You want to take a gastric bypass patient or an inflammatory bowel disease patient or a multipara or a woman with heavy uterine bleeding or a patient with Osler Weber Rendu. I've got them all. Pick one. <laughs> Matt, go ahead. How about a woman with heavy bleeding? Because this is a common okay. thing we see. Yeah. There are, well, we're only about 30 million of them in the United States. <laughs> and... We shall come in exhausted, typically, and we're sorry for to have fun. You know, a woman will walk in, hemoglobin high nines, ferritin four, TSAT three. What a ridiculous standard we have to give this poor creature oral iron that has no possibility of keeping up with her menstrual loss. And um, I'll say, hi, how much ice do you eat? Hmm. And she'll look at me like, who are you? How did you know that? <laughs> because it's so common, yet we're not taught to ask. Huh. How about, do you have restless legs or night? Do you kick right. your husband involuntarily? And these are questions we don't ask. So that's a typical patient. You look at her tongue. It looks like someone sandpapered it. If it's been around a long time, you'll see the mees lines in the fingernails, the little horizontal lines. They're mm-hmm. there. But typically, this woman's miserable. And then you say, well, did you have iron pills? And she'll go, oh, yes, they make me so sick. They're so constipating. I, I, I don't take them. And that's more often than not. Mm-hmm. Okay? I mean, we, we were taught that oral iron is well-tolerated. We went to medical school. We all did. All of us did that. We went to medical school. And we were taught it's well-tolerated. Well, if oral iron's well tolerated, I would really like to know what's poorly tolerated. <laughs> because 70% of the people to whom it's given report significant gastrointestinal perturbation and serious adverse events with intravenous iron are so rare that you would have to live to be very old to see one. The only one I ever saw was with, when we had that dangerous iron on the market. I gave, I think I've given about 50,000 doses. And two of them were with Dexferum, high molecular weight iron dextran that went away nine years ago. Good riddance. <laughs> um, and I had a patient who had anaphylactic shock who four months later was not dead, and I gave low molecular weight iron dextran to as an outpatient. And so I've not seen a serious adverse event. I do 10 to 12 a day, 2,400 a year. So this woman comes in and says, hi. I take a history. I work her up for other causes of anemia, which I almost never find. Do the prudent physical exam and give her 1,000 milligrams of low molecular weight iron dextran in an hour or – if I if the insurance company lets me a thousand twenty milligrams of ferromoxetol in fifteen minutes, or seven hundred fifty milligrams of injectifer if her if it's late in the afternoon and the insurance company will allow us to use the most 
you know, the much more expensive drug. Well, and she's all better. She's all better. When do you get to make a patient all better the day you meet them? Michael, so I wanted to I wanted to um, just clarify. So you're saying patient with iron deficiency and low hemoglobin, she's symptomatic, she comes in, you give her an IV iron formulation, and you're saying it's about 1,000 milligrams as a dose, depending on the formulation, right. and you give it uh, anywhere between 15 minutes and an hour, depending on the formulation again, and right. that patient will leave the office feeling better. Is that where you're like, they already feel better just getting the iron. They haven't made any blood yet, but they feel better from the iron. Yes. And they stop eating ice during the infusion. <laughs> so don't ask me why. Okay. Because I would, I don't know. That was my next question. Right. I don't know. The, the neurologist that I'm working with, with restless leg syndrome, highly, highly linked to iron deficiency. Right. Absolutely. Are, are very interested in why. But I'm well, not. As, I mean, that, that, I, I don't know. Okay. Why, why it's know linked it goes to away leg right syndrome? away. Rest, right. If you have restless leg syndrome, there's about a seventy-five percent right. chance that you're iron deficient. Right. Because iron, iron is. Yeah. And if you're iron deficient, there's about a thirty to forty percent chance that you will have restless leg syndrome. Right. Because iron is involved in the rate limiting step of tyrosine hydroxylase, the synthesis of uh, L-dopa from L-tyrosine. Do you think that's the reason? I thought it was. Is that not? I don't think. So. I don't think that's known. If it is, you should call my two colleagues. Right. I mean, it's it's involved in the rate limiting step of of synthesis of of dopamine and also serotonin and lo- and and downstream from that melatonin. And I've, and I'm I'm looking at some way to, to to validate those, looking at some of the downstream effects and and to see how strongly they're associated with iron deficiency. Call Richard early and. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Chris Early and Richard Allen at Hopkins, and yeah. they would love to talk to you about that. They're my collaborators with the Restless Leg Study. We just finished a double-blind, double-dummy right. against oral iron. But yeah, I, I don't know anything about mechanism. Stuart. Yeah, it's, it's, it's involved with tryptophan hydroxylase and the, and the uh, serotonin pathway as well. It's a rate-limiting step. Stuart, so tomorrow. Let, let, uh, Stuart I just want to uh, boil this down for the audience. What you are saying is that it, iron is a rate is a cofactor, or iron is right. evol- okay. So iron is a cofactor that is needed to make certain neurotransmitters. Right, right. And without right. without iron, when you're iron deficient, you become deficient in these neurotransmitters, and that has that has some effects other than anemia. Right. That has some other effects on the body, so that when you replete it, you're saying that that. Absolutely, and, and and this is and this is why. Um, and I, I, we we can get into the the, the lab um, as far as uh, goals of ferritin um, in, in in iron deficiency. But um, this is why it, it's it's why I think, at least to some degree, why it's implicated in things like fibromyalgia as well. Iron deficiency can affect pain threshold downstream by affecting levels of dopamine. Is and, fibromyalgia uh, real? <laughs> well, I think it depends on who you ask. <laughs> because yeah. restless legs are real. Yeah. Yeah. Well, those certainly are. You can't put restless legs in the same category as fibromyalgia. For one, right. it's a real science. That's a. That is a point. Yeah. So that's a controversy that we don't want to step into on this one. <laughs> okay. I want to cool. go back because the, the to go back to the basics of this, we 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 talked about diagnosing. Now this lady had an easy diagnosis because her ferritin was low, her 
uh, transfer and saturation was low. So that suggests iron deficiency anemia. But what about a patient, let's say this lady had a cellulitis going on, her hemoglobin's eight, her hemoglobin's eight, and her ferritin is 120, and her transfer and saturation is still low, because this is a case that I see all the time. And I find it, um, I think I know what to do, but I want to know, Michael, how do you handle those patients where, how do you interpret when the ferritin is high, but the transfer and saturation is low? Okay, well, that's iron-restricted erythropoiesis, and those patients need iron, and they invariably have a comorbidity. Mm-hmm. Does that mean that the the ferritin is elevated because it's an acute phase reactive? Yes. Okay. Yes. And so the transferrin saturation is more of, that's a marker that they are actually iron deficient. It's a marker that they need iron. Yeah. They may actually not be iron deficient, okay. but they, mm. ha- they have iron-restricted erythropoiesis, and oral iron will not work, and intravenous iron is necessary for adequate erythropoiesis, especially if you're giving an ESA, like erythropoietin or an Aranesp, uh, to a patient with either chronic kidney disease or myelodysplasia. No, no, not myel. No, sorry. Take that back. Okay. Not myelodysplasia, but uh, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, ulcerative colitis, or inflammatory bowel disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they have all those activated cytokines, um, they need intravenous iron to synergize. For erythropoiesis. So the idea is the iron, they have the iron in the body, but it's just not available. But when you give it by IV, they can use that iron that you've just given. That's right. And and that's hepcidin that's doing that. The hepcidin goes up and hepcidin blocks absorption. It also blocks release from macrophages, both of which are extremely heavily expressed with ferroportin. Okay. And, And oral iron quantitatively can't do it. It can't get absorbed. And the little bit that does absorb, does get absorbed, doesn't get out of the macrophage. Maybe, I I think it might be helpful if you just gave like a a broad overview of iron absorption, because I'm not sure that uh, I remember ferroportin and things like that. So I think it might be useful to just kind of Okay. Talking from a perspective of if I take oral iron, how's that going to get into my blood and, you know. All right. Um, okay. You swallow iron and it gets conjugated by acid in the stomach to vitamin C, amino acids, and sugars to protect it from the alkaline rush in the pancreas where it will otherwise be converted to ferric hydroxide, which is rust, and it doesn't get absorbed. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And and if that does happen, then iron goes down to the distal duodenum and proximal jejunum and a an active process using divalent metal transport protein one brings iron into the cell um, in the ferric form and iron gets into the cell and has to be transported across the cell by the only known export protein in humans called ferroportin. Ferroportin then exports iron into uh, the plasma where it's picked up by transferrin and delivered to the transferrin receptor for erythropoiesis. Excess iron gets picked up by macrophages, also heavily expressed by ferroportin, and when iron is needed, 
um, beyond what's immediately available in the blood, that that iron uh, gets exported onto trans onto transferrin and subsequently to the transferrin receptor. Um, in the in the face of inflammation or illness, when hepcidin is high, those two mechanisms are impeded. Mm-hmm. And and that's what you were taught was anemia of chronic disease that we now know as iron restricted erythropoiesis. Right. Okay. Huh. Yeah. I guess I, I guess I hadn't heard it it term that before. And so that thank you for clarifying that. Paul, you've been you've been strangely silent, or not strangely silent, but are, what would you like to ask next? Are we missing anything here from the basics kind of, of iron? No, that, that, that overview was really helpful. I actually, I kind of wanted to turn your question on its head a little bit. So it's, I think a similar situation that I run into actually fairly commonly as well as the patient who comes in, maybe a female patient who reports heavy menses, she's fatigued. You do, you do the CBC and you do the ferritin because you know she's going to be iron deficient. And then the CBC comes back stone cold normal, maybe even just a touch microcytic, but the ferritin is low. What do you do with those patients? And is there, is the utility in, in treating sort of the low ferritin and will they feel better if you do? You're going to get me in trouble with this question. <laughs> so this <laughs> is, us. is this term the, in the literature, is this what they call like iron deficiency without anemia? Is that? Well, the, well there's a marvelous paper in blood yeah. by Cryenbuehl et al. in 2011 of intravenous or intravenous iron or placebo for symptomatic, non-anemic, iron-deficient women. All right? Yeah. And I think we are horribly missing the boat in this population in pregnancy. You bet. Yeah. We'll get there later. So, um, I'm the author of the section of the treatment of iron deficiency for up to date. Right. And I don't say this in the chapter because the frontline therapy for this individual is oral iron. Right. There's no question about it. And um, now that we have the new data that when you swallow an oral iron pill, it raises your hepcidin blocking absorption for the next 48 to 72 hours. The, fir- the first paper came out in, ni- in 2015 by Moretti at Allen Blood. And then, and the last one just came out a couple of weeks ago in Lancet Hematology. And there was an accompanying editorial by me and Stan Schreier um, to accompany that paper. So, Ideally, I, I guess one iron tablet every other day or twice a week or once a month or <laughs> <laughs> something. something. Cook with, cook with the I iron mean, skillet. The studies aren't done. Stan thinks they should be done. I think it just screams to say. Right. Why? Yeah. I mean, this person who's symptomatic, even though she's not anemic, but is iron deficient. Why do you need to wait right. for her to become sick with iron deficiency anemia right. when I can fix her in 15 to 60 minutes in the office on the day that she walks in? Right. So, yeah, I, I would give her intravenous iron. By the way, would you like to know who that patient is? That's my daughter. Okay. She came to me with a hemoglobin of 11.9 and a ferritin of 9 with symptoms. 
Right. And I gave her a gram of iron and sent her back to school. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there was actually a couple of studies that look at uh, concentration, cognition, and school performance in uh, college-age females. They actually found that most college-age females were actually malnourished, but those who received were put on, on a high iron diet actually did better on tests. Um, yeah, but actually all females, who because every female that was enrolled in, in this specific trial was given a breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and everyone's ferritin improved over time. And their their conclusion was that everyone was malnourished, but those who received iron did slightly better, although not statistically different than those who didn't receive iron. But um, Do you know if you take a random 18-year-old girl and do a bone marrow, this is from 1976 data, okay? Do a bone marrow on a healthy 18-year-old girl. What's the likelihood that she'll have stainable iron? Healthy 18-year-old uh, girl. I'm going to say like 35%. It's a good answer. It's 42, but Pretty you're close. certainly in the right ballpark. 58% right. had no stainable iron. Healthy, wow, non-anemic, 18-year-old girl. So what we've, yeah. what women in the United States have allowed us to say, you're iron deficient, but it's normal. Right. That's what we say. That's what we do. And what, one of the things that I see on the CBC, I, I, so, and, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but you'll see anisocytosis first before microcytosis. I don't know the answer to that. I don't know. No. You might be right. So that's, for those who are listening, that's an, an elevated RDW or expansion of the, the uh, heterogeneity of red blood cells. Mm-hmm. You know, that makes sense. It, it really does. But um, there's no question that... Uh, the, the hemoglobin goes down before the red cell size does in iron deficiency. That's a known fact. So when, um, when we when we're treating somebody for iron deficiency, when like let's say we give them oral iron versus IV iron, mm-hmm. is there how much of a difference is there when we start to see the reticulocyte count go up or the hemoglobin go up? It goes up a little faster with intravenous iron. Mm-hmm. But not a lot. Okay. Um, the, the symptom uh, relief is much faster with IV iron, but it's pretty quick with oral iron if it's tolerated. Oral iron works. Mm-hmm. I don't want to leave this program at any time implying that oral iron doesn't work. It just it, it's not well tolerated. Okay. Most people don't tolerate it well. And... If you're sick, then it doesn't work. So, so what are the indications then for IV iron? What would what would you say that they are? <laughs> Live human. <laughs> um, I think oral iron intolerance or a condition in which oral iron is known to be ineffective or harmful, such as. Uh, an actively inflamed person, someone mm-hmm. with heavy uterine bleeding, gastric bypass, inflammatory right. bowel disease, Osler, Weber, Rendu, chronic kidney disease, or one of the collagen vascular diseases, or um, uh, you know, active inflammation, and anybody who's oral iron intolerant. Mm-hmm. So that means only well people thirty percent of the time. <laughs> yeah. Does right. the insurance company agree with you on those indications? You know, and, and what I'm really asking is, can we get paid? We, we proved Absolutely. we tried the oral iron. They'll give us the IV iron once we say, patient came back, they've been on it for a month, they, they couldn't do it. Okay, well, uh, we get paid all the time. 
and um, <laughs> I, I haven't I haven't had my office manager say they denied the IV iron. Okay. I don't remember a single case. Yeah, and and I'm I'm asking from a practical standpoint, not to uh, because because I think like you know what you're saying that that you're you're getting these patients to feel better right away is very appealing to to all practitioners, and if it, I just want to know like what hurdles our audience might find. I mean, Paul is practicing in an underserved area, um, and and he might not be able to order this for his patients um, mm. unless he's like meeting certain criteria. Oh, I don't think he'd have any problem at all as long as he, if he stays within uh, appropriate guidelines, it will not be difficult to find oral iron intolerance because the overwhelming majority <laughs> are. Secondly, yeah. anybody who has iron-restricted erythropoiesis is known not to respond to oral iron, and you have a you have a cause where oral iron is known to be ineffective. Or if you have somebody with inflammatory bowel disease and or gastric bypass where oral iron is actually harmful. Mm-hmm. Um, not so clear that it's harmful in gastric bypass, although it's incredibly irritating. But in inflammatory bowel disease, not only does it directly alter the pathology in a negative way, but it alters the gut flora in a negative way. That was published in Gut by Leodal just two years ago, that you get the wrong bacteria overgrowth yeah. if you give yep. oral iron. So it looks like you're dying to ask a question there, so let me... Oh, no, and I, I, I'm putting my, my hand up to so that when you're done um, talking there, that, that way Matt doesn't jump in. So oh. that has nothing to do with interrupting you, sir. No, it's a, you, it's fine. This is a, a lovely dialogue. I I, I think that um, and and then intravenous iron is indicated. But if you think having them feel better very quickly is um, appealing, watching the pagophagia that's been present for decades disappear in thirty to forty minutes—that's dazzling. Right. That's not appealing. That's awesome. I was going to say, well, I, I can say I don't like to see my patients suffer, but I can't answer for Matt. Well, come uh, on. I, I, I want to throw one question in there uh, before Matt can actually respond to that. Um, are there any differences in the different formulations of oral iron, like ferrous sulfate, glycinate, gluconate, Yeah, whatever there is? Yeah, um, none of them. None of the ones that work um, have been shown to be any more effective or less toxic. Even the new fancy Gucci oral irons that cost a mm. fortune, they've been compared and they're not tolerated any better than than the standard irons. But Flintstones. But you, have, you, you do. I don't know about Flintstones. <laughs> um, because pediatricians have not bought into this at all. They are uh, still very much in the uh, – uh, mm in the oral iron camp, although there are more and more papers popping up. In right. Cases. Yeah. Let's there's a couple back, of, let's sorry, get back to the better tolerated ones, like the timed release iron and Pharaoh's sequels, the one that's surrounded by colase, the textbook of hematology specifically says not to prescribe them by brand. So for those that perseverate with the use of these formulations, you might instruct them to just tell their patient to put one in the toilet three times a day because that's precisely where it's going to end up. <laughs> and you'll accomplish the same thing, which is nothing. Excellent. Right. So, no, there's no difference right now. There, there's something called sucrosomial iron that looks like it might be interesting in the future. There's a transdermal iron that is 
just being studied. But again, it's months to a year and a half of therapy to do what we can do in 15 to 60 minutes. Hmm. Yeah. I wanted to ask, um, I, I wanted to ask, we were talking about, we were talking about young women and iron and you, you mentioned pregnancy can, and, and that wasn't, I don't remember if you said that was one of the, the indications for giving IV iron, but I know that I heard you speak at the grand rounds and you were speak, you were speaking about IV iron during pregnancy. So yeah. can you tell us a little bit about why the audience might want to think about doing that? All right. So, um, there's very high quality data that women who, who are iron deficient are at risk for giving birth to an iron deficient neonate. Um, iron deficiency in pregnancy is associated with a two to threefold increase in preterm labor, low for gestational age babies, uh, peripartum hemorrhage. The list is long, but the real the real issue here is that babies who were born iron deficient, and let me remind everybody listening that we do not screen our babies, even though prospective evidence suggests that up to 20% are iron deficient. If a child is born iron deficient, there are neurocognitive correlates of cognition and behavior that are measurable uh, up to age 19. There is a statistically significant increase in both cognitive and behavioral abnormalities right. that persist after iron repletion, notwithstanding the, the symptoms that the mother has to deal with. Uh, by the third trimester, there is no credible expectation that the eight milligrams of absorbed iron per day that's necessary to meet placental and fetal needs uh, will be will be achieved by taking oral iron now, especially since we know that when you swallow an oral iron tablet, it impairs the absorption <laughs> of oral iron for the next 48 to 72 hours. So this is what I think, and this is what we're, I'm going to, uh, I'm writing this section of anemia and pregnancy for up to date right now with Helene Landy from Georgetown University. And I think we're going to recommend that all second and third trimester gravitas with severe iron deficiency get IV and not oral iron, that everybody in the third trimester get intravenous iron, and, and that any woman intolerant of oral iron should take intravenous iron immediately. Um, because baby needs the iron. It needs it for brain development. That's maximal at around week 34 onwards. So I think that covers pregnancy yeah. and pretty well. Absolutely. And just so we know how to interpret this, you, you said when, you're great, when you are diagnosing iron deficiency and, and you're kind of grading it mild, moderate, severe – what what cutoffs do you use for ferritin or the transferrin saturation that our audience just the because remember a lot of our audience are learners kind of all the way up through attending physicians so if you could tell us about right. the cutoffs you use all right. well for TSAT it's nineteen or less mm -hmm. and for ferritin it I think it depends whether there is an underlying disease but for a pregnant woman I think a ferritin less than thirty um, is a pretty good indicator of a need for for iron repletion. Okay. How about for someone with CKD um, and would that person, when would that person need IV iron based on their ferritin, their transferrin SAT? I think the transferrin SAT is low, 
19 mm-hmm. or less, that person needs iron before an ESA. Mm-hmm. But if ferritin's less than 100, most nephrologists believe that's absolute iron deficiency because of the upregulation of hepcidin and ferritin as an acute phase reactant. Okay. Yeah. And I think, and the KDGO guidelines, I'm not sure if you've looked at those. Those have really high numbers, like I think 500 or 300 or something for ferritin. They were 800. Okay. But but what happened was when bundling came along, uh, erythropoietin usage was cut by much more than 50% and iron went up by more than 60%. And what was happening is that, that now they were starting to see the effects of giving too much iron. Okay. And so the nephrologists who have always been at the forefront of this recognized it quickly. That was the work of Viziri and Fishbane and Wish and others. And I apologize for leaving them out. Um, uh, uh, certainly Anatoly Bessarab and Dan Coyne. Uh, and, and they recommend now, I believe, that the new KDGO guidelines are, uh, are, are TSATs uh, great, um, less than 40 with ferritins. Um, less than 500. I've given intravenous iron to people with ferritins of 4,000. Um, <laughs> with TSATs of 7, you want to tell me what that patient is? Iron-restricted erythropoiesis? No, that, that's, no, that's somebody with liver metastases. Okay. You can just ignore the ferritin in that situation. Okay. <laughs> it's not helpful at all. I did want to ask you, that you mentioned it a couple times, iron-restricted erythropoiesis. Is that just completely replacing the term anemia of chronic disease or anemia of chronic inflammation? And do yes. we and and so now we just recognize that by a, a ferritin that's normal or elevated, but a low transferrin saturation. Yes, sir. And if we're lucky, in the next couple of years, we're going to be able to replace it all with the reticulocyte hemoglobin content, which will come off the autoanalyzer in the same forty seconds that it takes for a CBC. Hmm. Wouldn't that be cool? Yeah, yeah, I like it. Amazing. Where we're working with that right now, Dr. Carla Berniera and I are working with that using parallel iron TIBC and ferritins pre and post iron therapy for iron deficient patients. We're hoping to have some data pretty soon. Excellent. Another case I wanted to ask you about: Let's say I have a patient admitted with a GI bleed. They're bleeding too fast, so we, we have to give them two units of blood uh, for a hemoglobin of six. But that person just feeling, they're still not feeling great even after the two units of blood. The bleeding's now stopped. Now, I just gave them two units of blood. So how much iron did I give them with the blood, and do I need to give them oral or IV iron as well? They have a GI bleed and you want to give them oral iron? That would No, well, it's the bleed. <laughs> sir, Cruel. The bleed, has, no. the bleed has stopped and we already transfused them. So do I need to also replete their iron? Oh, sure. Sure. We do it all the time. And oral iron's not going to work okay. because whatever, I mean, because they're sick mm-hmm. and um, you're going to exacerbate whatever caused it by this <laughs> noxious compound to the GI mucosa. So I had I had a bleeding ulcer eighteen months ago. I bled down to nine. Holy cow! <laughs> the American standard. Well, the holy cow was not knowing that I didn't have stomach cancer with the melana, and and when I found out it was a duodenal ulcer upon relief and turning it off, the American standard is to give me oral iron. I would put that under the heading of cruel. <laughs> <laughs> 
I just got over an ulcer and you're going to give me oral iron. So I gave oh. myself a gram of iron and three weeks later, my hemoglobin was 14.8. To be fair, Matt's giving iron orally to his NPO patients. So, I mean, I, all bets are off. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> and sometimes rectally. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, for the patient that, so it sounds like most patients that come in the hospital, if they're iron deficient, even if we transfuse them blood, we should also consider giving them IV iron. Yes. Okay. I think because that's that will give them the iron they need for erythropoiesis, which they will not get from the blood for a very long time. And most of the iron that is in blood will end up in the reticuloendothelial system unless you're dealing with a patient who's not sick. And very rarely does a patient who's not sick need blood. Well, I've been doing that wrong. But Michael, <laughs> my patient's also infected. Can I give them iron? <laughs> no, sir. There is no safety data. There is conjecture. I've read one paper that it's okay to give iron to a malaria patient, but the the overwhelming consensus here is active infection, do not give iron. That doesn't mean don't give IV iron. That means don't give iron. Okay. So to once an actively infected patient, just fix the infection, then give the iron. Awesome. Well, I, I know that we have limited time left. Um, one other thing we, we wanted to maybe end on, uh, congestive heart failure. From what I was looking up, it seems like jury's still out on this, uh, whether or not these patients should be getting iron. Well, you have to ask the cardiologist, but I'm not sure that the people who were doing the work think that the jury is out. There's now a litany of papers that show that uh, in the iron deficient patient with congestive heart failure, the administration of intravenous iron results in shorter hospital stays, improved cardiac contractility, increased survival. Mm -hmm. And that the first paper was Anker et al. in the New England Journal of Medicine. I think it was 2009. Uh, page one of that volume. It's Anker et al. Mm. Uh, um, uh, intravenous iron for congestive heart failure. Now there's a boatload of high quality evidence in quality journals in the United States and Europe. And I believe those cardiologists who are working with intravenous iron think that the jury is back <laughs> and with the, with the admonition to use it. Okay. Do you know that also intravenous iron lowers acutely lowers pulmonary artery pressures and pulmonary hypertension, and that's the work that's of Peter cool. Robbins from Oxford University. Um, and um, in in that in that setting, uh, there is a, there's a clinical improvement in in the cardiorespiratory cycle for those patients who are who are acutely ill, but more importantly. It reduces pulmonary artery pressures in patients who go up a mountain. <laughs> so it very likely is the appropriate, pr appropriate prophylaxis to prevent mountain sickness in somebody who's going up to 16,000 feet or more. Now, what 4, about 4,400 meters? And a last question on, uh, on CHF. What about using ESAs in addition to iron for patients with CHF? I don't know the answer. Okay. Well, I think, I think we've used up lots of your time. This has been great. Uh, a lot of, definitely a lot of practice changing stuff for me. Paul and Stuart, do we have questions from like Facebook or anything that we need to, 
to, to ask before we let him go? So most of the questions were asked. There is one question that uh, was posed by uh, one of the fellows that I work with. And actually, um, so th- this was initially posited more as a statement and less as a question. The concern for, so if someone has iron deficiency and has a history of a, a hereditary um, hemolytic anemia, like hereditary spherocytosis, what is the risk for iron overload in a patient that has iron deficiency and one of those conditions from, from an infusion of iron from uh, from oral iron from oral or intravenous iron if the patient's iron deficient there's no risk of iron overload you're not okay. even close you would have to give many many grams of iron before you would get near iron overload if you've diagnosed iron deficiency right so so suppose you had a patient with hemochromatosis who has been phlebotomized and the patient comes in with a hemoglobin of 11 and a ferritin of 9. You have no risk of giving that patient iron overload by giving them intravenous iron to correct the iron deficiency that was created by the injudicious use of phlebotomy. That doesn't mean be careless and keep doing it. You have right. to monitor. So the answer to your question is the risk of iron overload in a patient with a chronic hemolytic anemia who is iron deficient is zero. All right. with, with the initial um, infusion of iron, but that patient needs to be monitored. Right. Like anybody getting regular IV iron. Right. Okay. I feel, I feel much better. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, before we, before we close, you got, we got to take a minute to talk about the minor infusion reaction because almost everybody listening to this learned that intravenous iron was dangerous. The fact is that there is a minor infusion reaction. It consists of pressure in the chest or back or flushing in the face. It comes on very quickly, and it goes away in two to three minutes without treatment. There's no wheezing, strider, hypotension, or periorbital edema. All right? That's not an SAE. The treatment for that reaction is to chill. (laughs) Go away. Take your own pulse. Come back. And we normally give a steroid, which uh, seems to prevent the recurrence. It does about one in 3,000 times happen again, in which case we switch formulations on a different day. But we re-challenge the patient in that circumstance, and the overwhelming majority of the time they tolerate it. Okay. When, when we're uh, – so for our audience, they're probably now interested in using IV iron – they're going to go to their institution. They're going to have all different products. Is there is there a hierarchy of IV irons that that they should be looking for if they have a choice between between some? I think so. Um, and again, I have no interest in any of these products. I I don't use ferric gluconate and iron sucrose because it requires four to five visits. Mm-hmm. If you're treating chemotherapy induced anemia or dialysis patients, I have no I have no problem with um, using that drug because you've got a, a captive audience. Mm-hmm. But for the patient with, <laughs> with, with pregnancy or inflammatory bowel disease or gastric bypass or Osler-Weber-Rendu, where you want to treat them in a single setting, you've got low molecular weight iron dextran, which is in-fit. It's $234 a gram, and it takes an hour. You've got ferromoxetol that is approved for 510 milligrams in 15 minutes. It takes two doses. It's... Three hundred, uh, three hundred eighteen dollars 
for 510 milligrams. These are my costs. Okay, mm -hmm. you've got injectifer or ferric carboxymaltose. It comes exclusively as a 750 milligram vial. It costs $843. It can be given in probably 10 minutes. It causes hypophosphatemia in about half the patients or, or, or 30 to 50 percent of the patients to whom it's given. But clinically significant hypophosphatemia is vanishingly rare. I've never seen it in a thousand doses. Um, but the drug's very expensive, and I think the 750 milligram vial is incommodious. In in Europe, they have 500 milligrams and a gram, so they give a gram in 15 minutes all the time. It looks as if more than a gram is not useful because it looks as if we can't utilize more than a gram in a short period of time. Mm. That's what it looks like. So you take your pick. You can give any of those three in the U.S., um, to, to an outpatient. You know, the, I just told you the difference in cost. Um, the ferric carboxymaltose is 7.50 in 15 minutes. Uh, Ferromoxetol is 5.10 in 15 minutes. Or you can give a gram of Infed in an hour. Now, the label for Infed is 100 milligram bolus. What's the generic for that? Oh, I'm sorry. Low molecular weight iron dextrin. Excuse me. Okay. Perfect. I never, never give it according to label. Never. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Ten, 10 visits to do what I can do in one with no visit, with no difference in safety, no difference in efficacy. We're talking about 10 chances for an extravasation, 10 trenches for a minor infusion reaction compared to one, 10 visits. What do 10 visits cost? Right. I want to ask you for your take-home points for the audience. All right, I, I think that if, 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 you're, if you're practicing internal medicine, you need to know this. You need to know that intravenous iron formulations are available, that they're extremely safe, and that they need to be moved forward in the treatment paradigm of what just happens to be the commonest malady on the planet with three billion iron-deficient people crawling around on this earth. And um, you need to know them. You need to know their names. I think you need to know how they're given. And you need to know the, the, the nature of, of the minor infusion reactions because this folklore of serious adverse events that was actually worsened by the truly dangerous iron that's gone now, dexferum, um, exists today. Um, mo there, there's a tremendous resistance to the use of intravenous iron in medicine and especially in pregnancy because none of the formulations have the highest FDA safety rating. Mm -hmm. So I think you need to know this information. And I, and I think you need to know that oral iron is a, is a cheap and effective and convenient tool for patients with uncomplicated iron deficiency who are not actively bleeding who can tolerate it. Awesome. The rest – for the rest, intravenous iron is the preferred route. That's great. Uh, I I love it. So I I think the audience is really going to find this this as practice changing information, as I said before. So thank you so much, Michael. This was terrific. Yeah, uh, good for you guys. I, it's wonderful what you do. Thank you, Michael. Well, I all I'm right. glad I heard you speak, so we could have you on the program and share you with all with with our audience. Well, was it was really fine. It was a privilege. All right. You take care. All right. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Stuart or Paul, did you have anything that you wanted to add after the show, like, you know, in the yeah, recap I, here? Yeah, I, I actually do. There are, 
several studies that look at postpartum depression and treatment with uh, IV iron and show a significant improvement in symptoms for for, uh, postmenopausal, for postpartum um, women. Um, You know, there's a very strong association between iron deficiency and depression. And this is strikingly seen in younger patients, pediatric patients. There there is some evidence to suggest, actually evidence that suggests um, other psychiatric disorders as well. But certainly the postpartum studies um, link it to depression. I do believe it's it's related to neurotransmitter levels, but I, I don't have anything to support that. Right. Okay. Paul, anything? No. Okay. Maybe maybe we should uh, do the outro here. We could. Or I could keep talking about iron. <laughs> this has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Quite delicious. <laughs> you can find show notes... Uh, you can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. And please sign up to receive our weekly mailing list, which is a copy of the show notes at thecurbsider.com forward slash knowledge food. And finally, send us an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. You can recommend a future topic or tell us what you love or hate about the show. Check out our pages on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter, at The Curbsiders. I've been Dr. Matthew Watto, at Dr. Watto on Twitter. And I'm Dr. Stuart Ken Brigham, at Brigham SK. And good night. And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Do not follow me on Twitter. <laughs> good night. Please, uh, I just wanted to make a call to action to the audience. Everybody, please follow Paul on Twitter. And a special you will regret it. <laughs> <laughs> and a special thanks to uh, our correspondent Justin Burke, who helped put together a great, uh, great list of study and helped write this show and uh, make the show notes. So thank you very much, Justin Burke. Yeah, thank you. I mean, do you have any any questions or concerns? No, no, or? this is terrific. What a good thing you do. My goodness, you're such smart kids. And, oh, thank you. And, and, <laughs> we are neither of those things. Yeah, you're you're not a kid, <laughs> uh, Paul, but they yeah. are. <laughs> <laughs> I've got five kids. <laughs>